You are listening to As a Woman, episode 52, The Uterus. In this episode, we're going to talk all about your uterus, what it is, how it forms, all the different defects you can have, what this means for reproduction, and different problems that arise when your uterus is not functioning normally. Welcome to As a Woman, the podcast hosted by fertility physician, Dr. Natalie Crawford, to educate and empower women. Each week, learn about your health, your fertility, and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community, fostering collaboration over competition, while learning how to authentically find your voice and amplify others as a woman. Hi, friends. Welcome back to As a Woman. In this episode, we are talking all about your uterus. This is going to be a lot about Mullerian abnormalities, which are defects in uterine development. I'm going to touch on other issues that can happen with your uterus, but a lot of these deserve their own full episode later as well. But the truth is, I love the uterus. I think it is so fascinating to learn about the development and how this process goes normally, and then you can start to understand how it may go abnormally as well. First of all, if you are listening and you or someone you know has a Mullerian anomaly, which means a different uterine configuration than what we consider standard, you did nothing wrong. I just want to put that out there. This is at no fault of yours. You didn't do anything to cause this. This happened when you were a baby. It's actually a birth defect. Okay, but I want to think about the normal uterus for a moment before we dive into these different abnormalities because that will help you understand them the best. In general, most of us are used to seeing pictures of a uterus that almost looks like a triangle, upside down. So one point at the bottom, that's where the cervix is. Two points at the top, that's where the fallopian tubes come out. And your uterus reflected in some triangular shape. That is the standard configuration. The uterus has three different layers. So what you really have is you have a serosa, which is the outside of the uterus. This is thin and soft and slimy, and it's what comes in contact with your intestines and all your other organs. Under the serosa, you have the myometrium. This is the muscular component of your uterus. This is what causes cramps or contractions. And then under the myometrium, on the most inner portion of the uterus, is the endometrium. And the endometrium is what you shut off each month when you have your period. In reality, the endometrium is in two different levels. So there is part that's considered the basalis, like the basal. So one third closest to the myometrium is the part that regenerates the other two third of the endometrial lining. That's the functionalis. So really you shut off two thirds of your lining and you can leave behind one third. That's the basalis. That's really important because if that tissue, the basalis gets damaged from DNCs, from uterine surgery, then you may get scar tissue where the endometrium cannot regenerate. The uterus is very vasculature, meaning there's a lot of blood that comes to the uterus. Anybody who's an OBGYN is nodding their head in agreement because we have seen that thing bleed like stink. And anybody who's a med student who's ever been an OBGYN also agreeing, especially the time of pregnancy where the uterus is so much bigger. It's getting a lot of blood diverted to it to support a pregnancy. Blood loss from the uterus can be extremely rapid. So in order to accomplish this, keeping a child alive in the womb, the uterus has so much blood supply coming. 
The easiest way to think about it is these blood vessels are coming up through the sides of the uterus, penetrating through the myometrium, and then kind of branching out like small little capillaries that are called spiral arteries into the endometrium. This is important to know because the myometrium is where those hefty blood vessels live, and they give a lot of the blood supply to that endometrial layer. So imagine blood coming up the uterus, spreading throughout the muscle, then they dive into the endometrium from that muscular layer. Okay, if you've ever listened to this podcast before, you know I love the menstrual cycle. I love it. It is fascinating. It is a complex arrangement of hormones coming together that makes perfect sense once you understand it. However, I know a lot of people don't get it. Okay, so let's think very basic. The uterus's job, its number one job, is to be able to receive an embryo, allow it to implant, and become a home for a fetus. That's the number one job. Doesn't mean you have to have babies if you have a uterus. You still should know how yours works, but that's what the uterus is designed to be able to do. In order to do this, we constantly are shutting lining when a pregnancy does not occur. And the shedding of the lining or the endometrium, that is your menstrual cycle or your period. Entire episode called the menstrual cycle way early in the podcast, almost a whole year ago, if you dive back, I think it's episode six. But just in quick summary, imagine in your ovary that you have a vault where all your eggs are kept. You're born this way, and when the vault is empty, that's menopause. Every month, a group of eggs comes out of the vault. The size of the group correlates with how many eggs are left behind. So a lot of eggs left, a lot come out each month. Few eggs left, very few come out every month. Each egg grows inside a follicle, and the brain sends off a hormone called follicle-stimulating hormone, or FSH, very well-named hormone. FSH stimulates a follicle to grow. As that follicle, almost always it's one, grows, it makes estrogen as the egg is maturing. Estrogen talks back to the brain, tells the brain, hey, we're going, send out less FSH, and then the brain starts to send out less FSH. The truth is, in a young woman who's in her 20s, you probably have around 20 eggs coming out of the vault. You do not want to have 20 eggs get to maturity at once. The body is tightly regulated so that that does not happen. And it favors conservatively. Instead of letting 20 eggs be released, if one egg is not responding to that FSH, it won't send out a higher signal most of the time, and you may be in a situation where you are anovulatory or not ovulating. But let's presume you're ovulating. Brain and ovary are BFF. They are in tight communication. That way the brain knows if an egg is growing by estrogen being released. And that estrogen made by the ovary is crucial in being able to conceive. That estrogen also stimulates the uterus. So that endometrium, that functionalis later, gets the estrogen signal as well. And it says, oh, goody, an egg is growing. We're going to get ready to receive it. And you start getting this fluffy lining growing. Most women actually love this stage. They feel good with estrogen. It's the first two weeks. It takes about two weeks. Day number one is the day you have your period starting. That's actually when the next egg is starting to be recruited until about two weeks later when that egg ovulates. When the egg is mature, it makes a certain level of estrogen, 200 picograms for at least 48 hours. The brain says, ah, hey, we're mature now. Then it sends out an LH surge, which is luteinizing hormone. 
and LH surge allows the egg to be released. The egg is then in transit in the fallopian tube for the next around 24 hours, and that's where fertilization tends to occur. The ovary does not know if fertilization has occurred or not. So what it does is it starts being proactive. Oh, I hope we're going to get pregnant. And that LH coming from the brain now is stimulating that follicle, which released the egg to make progesterone. Now, progesterone stabilizes the lining and really does get it ready for implantation. There is actually a very narrow window of implantation after the corpus luteum starts to make progesterone where the embryo can actually implant. And further, this progesterone is essential for an embryo to be able to grow in. So if you had an ovarian cyst when you ovulated, if it ruptured or twisted or had to be taken out for whatever reason, and you did not take progesterone, you would not be able to get pregnant or you would lose a pregnancy. It is crucial. So the corpus luteum can live for about 14 days. So it is stimulated by LH from the brain. LH causes the corpus luteum to make progesterone. And it is rescued by a pregnancy implanting. So if a pregnancy implants, it starts to make a hormone called HCG. HCG is human chorionic gonadotropin. You don't have to know that, but it is the pregnancy hormone. It is what causes pregnancy tests to be positive. That's what they're checking for. Or if you ever get a blood pregnancy test, we're looking for HCG. However, HCG stimulates the corpus luteum to make more progesterone. Then the body knows it's pregnant. Okay. But if there's no pregnancy, there is no HCG, your progesterone levels then drop off. And what happens then is that's a signal to the uterus, hey, there's no baby this month. Let's shed this lining in preparation for the next month. So it is the drop in progesterone that allows you to shed your endometrial lining in preparation to have a new egg grow and grow a new lining for the next month in case that's the right time. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43%, 
and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No long shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. Last few semantics here. The first half of the cycle when an egg is growing inside a follicle, that's known as the follicular phase because that's what's happening in the ovary. And it's also called the proliferative phase because that's what's happening in the uterus. The second half of the cycle after you've ovulated is known as the luteal phase because there's a corpus luteum in the ovary, also known as the secretory phase because that is what's happening inside the uterus. So Med Student 101, follicular, proliferative, the same. That's the first half of a cycle when an egg is growing and estrogen is being made. Second half of the cycle, luteal, secretory, those are the same. That's when a corpus luteum is making progesterone. Now, one thing that can go wrong with the uterus is what's called a luteal phase defect. And I love a luteal phase defect in full transparency. This is what all my fellowship research was on, my thesis was on luteal phase defect. Man, we could talk about this for a long time. There is a lot of debate if a luteal phase defect is the problem of the uterus or is it the problem of the ovary. Does the ovary not ovulate a follicle that is capable of making a good corpus luteum? Thus, in the luteal phase, it doesn't make enough progesterone to support stabilizing that lining for implantation, and perhaps you have spotting or shortened phase. Similarly, or alternatively, Could it be that the uterus doesn't respond appropriately to normal progesterone signals? So corpus luteum doing fine, making progesterone. However, the uterus is not responding. Therefore, you're having spotting, a shortening of the phase, etc. Personally, I think it's probably an ovarian problem. And I think this is an early phase of ovulation dysfunction. But that being said, when somebody says they have a luteal phase defect, That means the second half of their cycle is either shorter or has spotting in it, and there is concern that they don't have enough progesterone to support their lining. So the uterus is fascinating. It has all these different layers. It has the ability to grow and expand and house a baby. It can allow a placenta to invade and grow in without rejecting it. And it also is constantly responding to hormone levels in order to get ready for that implantation whenever it may or may not occur. A few housekeeping facts. One is that if your periods are regular, since we're talking about this, it should happen at a regular predictable interval, anywhere from 21 to 35 days, but it should be consistent for you within one to two days. If it's not, something's not functioning normally. And also you should know that birth control works at either the level of the brain, ovary, or uterus, essentially either preventing ovulation or preventing implantation. So birth control pills, estrogen progesterone-based, those prevent the brain from sending out FSH so you don't ovulate. Similarly, high-dose Depo-Provera shot prevents the brain, that's progesterone injection, from sending out hormones and you don't ovulate. You also could use an IUD that's progesterone-only based, and that actually makes the endometrium inhospitable for an embryo to implant because it is constantly secreting progesterone instead of only in half of the cycle. 
I get a ton of questions about period abnormalities on hormonal contraception. The vast majority of hormonal contraception will change your period. You either will not have a period, or you may have a lighter period, or it'll make your period regular, or you'll have less cramps. Those are all normal side effects of the contraception and doesn't mean something's wrong with your period. All right, friends. Well, let's talk about I love Mullerian anomalies. I know I think that's funny. A lot of people don't even know what they are or care, but I find it just fascinating. I've always loved embryology, which is the development of an embryo, how something goes from two different cells, an egg and a sperm coming together to this multi-cell being is fascinating. Okay, but Mullerian anomalies, those are defects in the Mullerian system, which includes the uterus. They occur in about 7 to 10% of all women. There is an increased chance of miscarriage with a lot of these abnormalities. So in women who have recurrent miscarriages or preterm birth, about 25% of them will have an abnormality of the uterus. That's a really high number. There is also an increased association between these abnormalities and endometriosis, especially endodiagnosed at a young age. So let's dive into this. One, developing a uterus is the default. So every little embryo has Mullerian structures. So there's a lot of different structures, but essentially the easiest way to think about it is the Mullerian structures become the upper part of the vagina, the cervix, the uterus, and the fallopian tubes. These develop along with the mesonephros or the kidneys, kidneys, ureters, bladder. So often very severe defects can be found in both. However, everybody has mesonephros. Everybody gets kidneys and ureters. So the mesonephric system is very different. But the mullerian, that is your uterus. Every little embryo default is to develop a uterus. However, male embryos who have functioning Y chromosomes will start to make AMH, anti-mullerian hormone. I know we've talked about AMH because it's important in egg selection and secretion and a marker of how many eggs you have left. But AMH is named anti-Mullerian hormone because it inhibits the growth of the Mullerian structures, the uterus, in male embryos. So if you have a Y chromosome that works, you will have Sertoli cells. And Sertoli cells are in the testes, so Sertoli cells will make AMH. That will cause ipsilateral or same side inhibition of the Mullerian structures. I just go into all of that detail because there's sometimes very interesting things that happen where you have a Y chromosome, but your androgens aren't functioning normally. You may develop some of these structures, even though genetically you are male. Or similarly, you may be male and not develop these structures because you're not supposed to because your body can make AMH, but you have a defect in the androgen receptor or the testosterone receptor, and so your external characteristics are all female. So you don't have female internal structures. You have female external structures. That's called androgen insensitivity syndrome. That's all super detail, but I think the important thing here is that your internal anatomy develops completely independently of your external genitalia. Isn't that fascinating? But truth being told, these Mullerian structures, if everything's good, so if you're an XX woman and you do not have a Y chromosome, so you don't have Sertoli cells that are making any AMH, your Mullerian structures start to develop and they grow in two separate horns. Ah, isn't that crazy? You have like two little buds. 
they first elongate. So that's step number one. So your whole little structures, upper third of the vagina, cervix, uterus, and fallopian tubes, start out as these little Mullerian buds. They then link them right next to each other in parallel. So imagine two little long lines. These Mullerian ducts become your fallopian tubes, uterus, cervix, upper part of the vagina. They then fuse together. So they're still independent, but they're fused together. Fusion starts in the midline and then extends both directions. Then the midline portion is reabsorbed from the bottom up. And this reabsorbs all the way, connecting the two tubes in the middle. And that is how we get our triangular-shaped uterus that has all three layers with the endometrium on the inside. So the most common Mullerian abnormality is called a uterine septum. And a uterine septum is where the last stage of this does not complete. So that midline connecting portion does not fully reabsorb. A septum occurs in all the uterine abnormalities. About 35% of them are uterine septums, so it's the most common. It can range. It can be a very mild septum. It can be a really deep septum. There are different variants here, but it's not specifically a cause of infertility, but it is most certainly associated with an increase of miscarriage. A lot of women do not know they have a septum. Their periods come normally. Nobody's ever looked in your uterus. You can't tell at a regular gynecologic visit with a pap smear or whatever. And so most women do not even know. If you have a uterine septum and you get pregnant, 80 to 90% of those pregnancies will end in miscarriage. That is a huge number. And that is because that septum is avascular. It doesn't have that myometrial tissue layer that we talked about. It is just an avascular portion dangling into the uterus. So if a pregnancy tries to come and implant, there's no good healthy tissue to allow it to really implant all the way sufficiently. Septums are also associated with growth restriction or preterm birth or abnormal positioning of a baby. So occasionally they are diagnosed because the baby's not growing correctly or because the baby is breech. And at C-section, it is determined that a patient has a septum. The good, good, good news is that septums are easily corrected with surgery. Ah, this is my favorite surgery. My favorite. Literally, the surgery is probably part of why I went into REI. REI is both a very brain-heavy field, hormones, high-tech stuff, trying to explain it to patients, and a lot of procedures and surgery. And I love septum resections. They are hysteroscopic surgery, so that means a camera through the uterus. So you are doing this non-invasively, but you essentially use micro-instruments and cut out the avascular portion. So rewarding. You literally can look at a uterus, and it's like two different tunnels, and you see this midline thing that shouldn't be there, and you can take it out, and it's done. So good. The great news is that after correcting it, the rate of miscarriage drops substantially. There is a small risk of scar tissue afterwards, so a lot of us, myself included, do different things after taking out the septum to try to prevent scar tissue from forming. Now, one step up from a septum is a bicornuate uterus. So what this was both a failure of fusion, so the two horns at the top portion did not fuse all the way, although they did at the bottom. So at the bottom they fused and they had regression of what was there, but at the top the horns were not fused. This is typically considered a heart-shaped uterus. Interesting fact is that a bicornuate uterus and a septum look the same on HSG. So if you're coming in to see me and you get an HSG, hysterosalpingogram, an x-ray dye test to look at the inside of the uterus and the fallopian tubes, both a bicornuate and a septum will look the same. That's because the HSG is just telling me about the inside of your uterus. It's not telling me about anything on the outside. 
So a bicornuate actually has that muscular layer coming down. So it's not avascular. It's actually the two independent horns. So there's muscle, the internal portion. If you were to look from laparoscopy or from surgery of the abdomen, you would actually see a divot at the top of the uterus where these two horns fail to fuse. For the most part, these have really good pregnancy outcomes. There may be a slightly higher rate of miscarriage, preterm birth, breach, need for C-section, but that is not at all associated like a septum is with this high association with miscarriage. Also not known to be a cause of infertility because there's good tissue everywhere where a pregnancy could implant. This being said, we do not usually correct these. There is a surgical procedure called a metroplasty. It's like a big deal, guys, and we have not done them in a long time. I've never seen one. But what you would go do is cut a triangular chunk out of the uterus and then sew it together to try to reconfigure into a traditional shape. Yeah, that's a big, big deal with a lot of risks. And as I said, current science has told us that is not needed. Bicornuate uteruses occur in about 25% of all Mullerian abnormalities, so it is the second most common. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited that summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside, enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. The next on the list is called a unicornuate, and I think these are so fascinating. So what happened here is that one little Mullerian bud did nothing, didn't form at all. Sometimes it's considered rudimentary and just stuck next to the other one. So you get this tube-shaped uterus. You have one cervix, one little uterus that usually deviates to the side, one connected fallopian tube. You still have two ovaries, so ovaries are not related to this pathway at all. Remember I've said fallopian tubes, uterus, cervix, upper vagina. So one side developed normally, one side didn't develop at all. There is an increased rate of miscarriage, ectopic pregnancy, babies being born breech, growth restriction, preterm birth. If there's a rudimentary horn that has functioning endometrial tissue, it needs to come out because you can, in theory, get an ectopic pregnancy there or it can get blocked up and cause a lot of pain. There's a very high association with these and endometriosis. And that's because we know there is a backup of menstrual blood. That retrograde menstruation does not in of itself cause endometriosis. I hate when people hear what I'm saying and they think that. Endometriosis is an autoimmune inflammatory condition where the body responds inappropriately to a normal condition. But we see this in an increased prevalence of women who have a unicornuate uterus. So there can be other 
scar tissue and things on the inside of their body as well. And there's also a huge association with renal abnormalities. About 40% of women who have a unicorate uterus also are lacking one kidney on the same side. So whatever caused those Mullerian ducts to not grow also caused the mesonephric duct to not grow on that side also. And there's also a didelphus. So a didelphus is where you had your two horns grow, but they didn't fuse, so there was nothing to regress. This is often diagnosed earlier because when you go do a pap smear, you can actually see two separate cervical canals. So you have two cervici, cervixes, I'm not sure, two different cervical entrances. Then you will have separate uterine cavities. Each one has its own fallopian tube. These are typically associated with a vaginal septum also. So imagine these two different horns. Remember, we talked about the upper one-third of the vagina coming from these malarian ducts too. It's actually often divided with a septum, dividing it into two different portions, left and right. So these are often diagnosed earlier, unlike some of the other abnormalities. They are associated with poor pregnancy outcomes, miscarriage, breach presentation, preterm birth. Treatment may be indicated if there's repetitive poor outcomes. It really depends on what is going on. Most commonly, we take out the vaginal septum, but leave everything else intact. So that's a vaginal surgery to take out that septum. Common, common thing you hear for these young women. I put a tampon in, but I'm still bleeding a ton. And what is happening is the tampon's going on one side of the septum. The other uterine horn on the other side is still bleeding. And so these tend to get diagnosed earlier. They happen about 8% of all Mullerian abnormalities. There's a fascinating thing that can happen with these, which is called OVIRA, obstructed hemivagina with ipsilateral renal agenesis. Essentially, this vaginal septum obstructs completely one half of it. So instead of coming completely down the middle of the vagina, it's more off to an angle. It's very fascinating. But what happens is there's this obstruction. Kidney doesn't form on that side either. And you have to go in surgically and take out this septum so that menstrual blood can drain. And it's just super important to know. Very high association with endometriosis in these also. A lot of these abnormalities do impact us when it comes to fertility treatments when I see patients. For example, those with didelphus or unicornate uterus, I really do not want you to get pregnant with twins. Your uterus probably does not have the capacity to handle it, and your increased chance of having pre-viable twin death is very high. And so we often look towards IVF, which I know sounds really invasive, but it's not, and we're able to then selectively put the best embryo back inside and give that child the highest chance of becoming a baby. So very different mentality than let me give you some Clomid and let you ovulate and see if you can get pregnant that way. And then there's also being born without any of these structures. No cervix, really no upper vagina, no cervix, no uterus, no fallopian tubes. This is one of two things almost always. So if you are genetically XX, genetically female, this is called Mullerian agenesis. So these structures did not develop for whatever reason. It is called Meyer Rokitansky Kusterhauser, MRKH, very fancy name. You may have read about this some in the news because previously these women have ovaries and we would take out eggs for a surrogate to carry a pregnancy for them. We still do that. However, there have been cases where women who have MRKH can have a uterine transplant, which is really exciting for this group of women. So if you read, woman born without uterus now receives uterine transplant, this is what it is. Or it could be something called androgen insensitivity syndrome, which is where 
genetically, actually, you are XY. However, the Y chromosome makes testosterone. So it makes AMH, so no uterus is formed. It makes testosterone, but that can't be absorbed because the testosterone receptor doesn't work. So the external body looks completely female, even though internally your genetics are male. Fascinating. But if you get diagnosed or somebody you know with no uterus, that will be the first line step. What do the chromosomes show? Because that will tell us, do we have ovaries? Do we have eggs? Are these actually testes? What is going on? That's a fascinating topic in and of itself. I'm going to end this talk about the uterus by talking about uterine fibroids or leiomyomas. Fibroids are actually very prevalent. They are benign tumors, so a ball of abnormal cells that occur in the uterus. They can be associated with uterine symptoms such as heavy periods, menorrhagia, heavy pain, dysmenorrhea. You can actually sometimes just get pelvic pain from feeling a bulk uterus symptoms. And there's some genetic predisposition. We see that there's an increased chance of having a fibroid if you had a first-degree relative who also had a fibroid. Of women who've had pelvic ultrasounds, for whatever reason, about 30% of them will have a uterine fibroid. That's super high. And there is likely some hormonal relationship to estrogen. We actually think it's pretty complicated because sometimes hormonal contraception will help them and sometimes it makes them worse. But we do know that it appears that estrogen and progesterone receptors are prevalent in fibroids and can contribute to how they respond to hormonal treatment. There is a cancerous version of these called leiomyosarcoma. It happens in less than 1%, but it does mean if you have a rapidly growing fibroid, somebody is going to evaluate it because we want to make sure that it is not cancerous. Overall, though, exceedingly rare. And by the time people have gone through menopause, if we look at hysterectomy specimens, so women who went and had their uterus out, 70 to 80% of women will have a fibroid in their uterus, higher prevalence if you're African-American. So these are very, very common. Now, do fibroids impact your chance of becoming pregnant? This is a hot topic. For the most part, it depends where the fibroid is and what its size is. So fibroids that are on the complete outside of the uterus, the serosa, those tend not to impact at all. In theory, they only may if they're obstructing a fallopian tube, so if they're preventing egg and sperm from meeting. But for the most part, if they're on that outer portion, they're not contributing. Alternatively, fibroids on the inside of the uterus are contributing a lot. So these are considered submucosal, and it doesn't matter how big or how small. If it is pushing or dangling or inside that endometrial cavity, it is harder for a pregnancy to implant, and those have to come out. Luckily, that's a very easy surgery. It's called hysteroscopic myomectomy, so very similar to the septum. Camera goes in through the uterus. We will cut out the fibroid tissue. We need to get the uterus to heal, but most people do great after that surgery. But the problematic ones are the ones that we consider intramural or that are growing in the myometrium, that middle muscular layer. Small fibroids in this area likely do not need to be taken out unless they're really poking into the cavity. So those that are less than 5 centimeters are probably fine. Fibroids that are greater than 5 centimeters we sometimes recommend taking out because we're concerned that the blood distribution inside the myometrium is so disrupted that it will be hard for a pregnancy to implant. Sometimes we don't know. Surgery is a big deal. Open surgery, cutting on the uterus, sewing it back together. So we don't love to go risk your uterine architecture and structure and function if we're not sure that it makes a difference. 
fibroids that are intramural with a history of miscarriage, we almost always will operate on because those are now increasing our suspicion that in you, these fibroids are causing a problem. Surgery can be done robotically. It can be done laparoscopy with a little camera and instruments. It can be done open like a C-section. This will totally depend on size, location, surgeon preference, et cetera, et cetera. What is most important is a good closure in the uterus and that your uterus is going to have the integrity it needs. However, after any of these surgeries, no matter how it happens, you do have an increased risk of uterine rupture where the uterus ruptures when it is contracting. And in that situation, almost everybody who's had a prior fibroid removal surgically is recommended to have a primary C-section. So there are long-term risks with this. That being said, the prevalence of fibroids is so high and the incidence of those that actually cause reproductive problems is much lower. So if somebody casually mentions, oh, I see a small fibroid, do not freak out. Get more information, where it is, how big is it. You can see a fertility specialist like me or a gynecologist and get more details, but I don't want you freaking out ahead of time. Also, most mullerian abnormalities have these different side effects that we can't do anything about. Only in the case of a uterine septum or a vaginal septum are we really going and doing surgery to try to repair these. It is very important that you understand your body, what's going on with it, so that you can make the decisions that are right for you. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. I find the uterus just fascinating. Again, if your periods are abnormal, you should seek help for it. That's not a normal thing. You deserve to know what's going on with your body. Thanks for listening. Hey guys, welcome to The Collective. I'm Brianne Halfrich, a 26-year-old bioethics PhD student and clothing brand CEO. Welcome to my podcast where we talk all things health and wellness, navigating your 20s, and becoming the best version of yourself. So sit down, play that episode, and join The Collective.